0: Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American Frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspapermen, and others, written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called "this britches busting country," and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes. And today, we're going to be reading from an old fan favorite, Andy Adams. Today, we have The Log of a Cowboy, a narrative of the old trail days. We're going to focus on Chapter 8, Dodge. This tells a rousing story of the uh, cowhands coming into Dodge and kicking some dust off of their boots. Well, sit right back and listen to this tale. I'll tell you, I had to uh, stop a couple times because I was laughing literally out loud. It was so funny. But anyway, enjoy yourselves and uh, enjoy the read. Have a good day. Chapter 8, Dodge. At Camp Supply, Flood received a letter from Lovell, requesting him to come into Dodge ahead of the cattle. So, after the first night's camp above the Cimarron, Flood caught up a favorite horse, informed the outfit that he was going to quit us for a few days, and designated Quince Forest as the Segundo during his absence. "'You have a wide open country from here to Dodge,' he said. "'I'll try to meet you at Mulberry Creek, which is about ten miles south of Dodge. I'll make that town tonight. You ought to make the Mulberry in two days. You'll see the smoke of passing trains to the north of the Arkansas from the first divide south of Mulberry.'" When you reach that creek, in case I don't meet you, hold the herd there, and three or four of you can come into town. But I'm almost certain to meet you there, he rode away. Priest, said Quince when our foreman had gone, I reckon you didn't handle your herd to suit the old man when he left us that time at Buffalo Gap, but I think he used rare judgment this time in selecting a Segundo. The only thing that frets me is I'm afraid he'll meet us before we reach the mulberry and that won't give me any chance to go in ahead like a sure enough foreman. Fact is, I have business there. I deposited a few months' wages at the Long Branch Gambling House last year when I was in Dodge, and I failed to take a receipt. I just want to drop in and make inquiry if they give me credit, and if the account is drawing interest. I think it's all right. for the man I deposited it with is a clever fellow, and he asked me to have a drink with him just as I was leaving. Still, I'd like to step in and see him again. Early in the afternoon of the second day after our foreman left us, we sighted the smoke of passing trains, though they were at least fifteen miles distant, and long before we reached the mulberry, a livery rig came down the trail to meet us. To Forrest's chagrin, Flood, all dressed up and with a white collar on, was the driver, while on a back seat sat Don Lovell and another cowman by the name of McNulty. Every rascal of us gave the old man Don the glad hand as they drove around the herd, while he liberal and delighted as a bridegroom passed out the cigars by the handful the cattle were looking fine which put the old man in high spirits and he inquired of each of us if our health was good and if flood had fed us well they loitered around the herd the rest of the evening until we threw off the trail to graze the camp for the night when Lovell declared his intention of staying all night with the outfit While we were catching horses during the evening, Lovell came up to me where I was saddling my night horse, and recognizing me gave me news of my brother Bob. I had a letter yesterday from him, he said, written from Red Fork, which is just north of the Cimarron River over the Chisholm Route. He reports everything going along nicely, and I'm expecting him to show up here within a week. His herd are all beef steers, and are contracted for delivery at the Crow Indian Agency. He's not driving as fast as flood, but we've got to have our beef for that delivery in better condition, as they have a new agent there this year, and he may be one of those knowing fellas. Sorry you couldn't see your brother, but if you have any word to send him, I'll deliver it. I thanked him for the interest he had taken in me, and I assured him that I had no news for Robert, but took advantage of the opportunity to inquire if our middle brother, Zach Quirk, was on the trail with any of his herds. Lovell knew him, but felt positive he was not with any of his outfits. We had an easy night with the cattle. Lovell insisted on standing a guard, so he took Rod Wheat's horse and stood the first watch. And after returning to the wagon, he and McNulty, to our great interest, argued the merits of the different trails until near midnight. McNulty had two herds coming in on the Chisholm Trail, while Lovell had two herds on the western and only one on the Chisholm. The next morning, Forrest, who was again in charge, receive orders to cross the Arkansas River shortly after noon, and then let half the outfit come into town. The old trail crossed the river about a mile above the present town of Dodge City, Kansas. So when we changed horses at noon, the first and second guards caught up their top horses, ransacked their war bags, and donned their best toggery. We crossed the river about one o'clock in order to give the boys a good holiday the stage of water making the river easily fordable. McCann, after dinner was over, drove down on the south side for the benefit of a bridge which spanned the river opposite the town. It was the first bridge he had been able to take advantage of in over a thousand miles of travel, and today he spurned the cattle ford as though he had never crossed it one. Once safely over the river, and with the understanding that the herd would camp for the night about six miles north on Duck Creek, six of our men quit us, and rode for the town in a long gallop. Before the rig left us in the morning, McNulty, who was thoroughly familiar with Dodge and an older man than Lovell, in a friendly and fatherly spirit, seeing that many of us were youngsters, had given us an earnest talk and plenty of good advice. I've been in Dodge every summer since 77, said the old cowman, and I can give you boys some points." Dodge is one town where the average bad man of the West not only finds his equal, but finds himself badly handicapped. The buffalo hunters and range men have protested against the iron rule of Dodge's peace officers, and nearly every protest has cost human life. Don't ever get the impression that you can ride your horses into a saloon or shoot out the lights in Dodge. It may go somewhere else, but it don't go there. So I want to warn you to behave yourselves. You can wear your six shooters into town, but you better leave them at the first place you stop, hotel, livery, or business house. And when you leave town, call for your pistols. But don't ride out shooting. Leave that out. Most cowboys think it's an infringement on their rights to give up shooting in town. And if it is, it stands, for your six shooters are no match for Winchesters and buckshots. And Dodge's officers are as game a set of men as ever faced danger. Nearly a generation has passed since McNulty, the Texas cattle drover, gave our outfit this advice one June morning on the Mulberry. And in setting down this record, I have only to scan the roster of peace officials of Dodge City to admit its correctness. Among the names that graced the official roster during the brief span of the trail days were the brothers Ed, Jim and Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, Jack Bridges, Doc Holliday, Charles Bassett, William Tillman, Shotgun Collins, Joshua Webb, Mayor A.B. Webster, and mysterious Dave Mather. The puppets of no romance ever written can compare with these officers in fearlessness. And let it be understood, there were plenty to protest against their rule, Almost daily during the range season, some equally fearless individual defied them. Throw up your hands and surrender, said an officer to a Texas cowboy who had spurred an excitable horse until it was rearing and plunging in the street, leveling, meanwhile, a double-barreled shotgun at the horseman. Not to you, you white-livered SOB, was the instant reply, accompanied by a shot. The officer staggered back, mortally wounded, But recovered himself, and the next instant the cowboy reeled from his saddle, a load of buckshot through his breast. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. After the boys left us for town, the remainder of us, belonging to the third and fourth guard, grazed the cattle forward leisurely during the afternoon. Through cattle herds were in sight up and down the river on either side. And on crossing the Mulberry the day before, we learned that several herds were holding out as far south as that stream. While McNulty had reported over 40 herds as having already passed northward on the trail. Dodge was the meeting point for buyers from every quarter. Often herds would sell at Dodge, whose destination for delivery was beyond the Yellowstone in Montana. Herds frequently changed owners when the buyer never saw the cattle. A yearling was a yearling, and a two-year-old was a two-year-old, and the seller's word that they were as good or better than the string I sold you last year was sufficient. Cattle were classified as northern, central, and southern animals, and, except in case of severe drought in the preceding years, were pretty near uniform in size throughout each section. The prairie section of the state left its indelible imprint on the cattle bred in the open country, while the coast, as well as the piney woods in the blackjack sections, did the same, thus making the classification easy. McCann overtook us early in the evening, and being an obliging fellow was induced by Forrest to stand the first guard with Honeyman, so as to make up the proper number of watches. Though, with only two men on guard at a time, for it was hardly possible that any of the others would return before daybreak, there was much to be seen in Dodge, and as losing a night's sleep on duty was considered nothing, in hilarious recreation, sleep would be entirely forgotten. McCann had not forgotten us, but had smuggled out a quart bottle to cut the alkali in our drinking water. But a quart amongst eight of us was not dangerous. So the night passed without incident though we felt a growing impatience to get into town. As we expected, about sunrise the next morning, our men off on holiday rode into camp, having never closed an eye during the entire night. They brought word from Flood that the herd would only graze over to Saw Log Creek that day so as to let the remainder of us have a day and night in town. Lovell would only advance half a month's wages, $25, to the man. It was ample for any personal needs, though we had nearly three months' wages due, and no one protested, for the old man was generally right in his decisions. According to their report, the boys had a hog-killing time, old man Don having been out with them all night. It seems that McNulty stood in well with a class of practical jokers, which included the official of the town. And whenever there was anything on the tappies, he always got the word for himself and his friends. During breakfast, Fox Quarternight, told this incident of the evening. Some professor, a professor in the occult sciences, I think he called himself, had written to the mayor to know what kind of a point Dodge would be for a lecture. The lecture would be free, but he also intimated that he had a card or two on the side up his sleeve, by which he expected to graft on some of the coin of the realm from his wayfaring man as well as the citizen. The mayor turned the letter over to Bat Masterson, the city marshal, who answered it, and invited the professor to come on, assuring him that he was deeply interested in the occult sciences, personally, and would take pleasure in securing him a hall and a date, besides announcing his coming through the papers. Well, he was billed to deliver his lecture last night. Those old longhorns, McNulta and Lovell, got us in the crowd, and while they didn't know exactly what was coming... They assured us that we couldn't afford to miss it. Well, at the appointed hour in the evening, the hall was packed, not over half being able to find seats. It is safe to say that there were over 500 men present, as it was announced for men only. Every gambler in town was there, with a fair sprinkling of cowmen men in our tribe. At the appointed hour, Masterson, as chairman, rapped for order and in a neat little speech announced the object of the meeting. Bat Masterson mentioned the lack of interest in the West in the higher arts and sciences, and bespoke our careful attention to the subject under consideration for the evening. He said he felt it hardly necessary to urge the importance of good order, but if anyone had come out of idle curiosity or bent on mischief as chairman of the meeting and a peace officer of the city, he would certainly brook no interruption. After a few other appropriate remarks, he introduced the speaker as Dr. J. Graves Brown, the noted scientist. The professor was an oily-tongued fellow and led off on the prelude to his lecture, while the audience was as quiet as mice and as grave as owls. After he had spoken about five minutes and was getting warmed up to his subject, he made an assertion which sounded a little fishy and someone back in the audience blurted out, That's a damn lie! The speaker halted in his discourse and looked at Masterson, who arose and, drawing two six-shooters, looked the audience over as if trying to locate the offender. Laying the guns down on the table, he informed the meeting that another interruption would cost the offender his life if he had to follow him to the Rio Grande or the British possessions. He then asked the professor, as there would be no further interruptions, to proceed with his lecture. The professor hesitated about going on, when Masterson assured him that it was evident that his audience, with the exception of one skulking Coyote, was deeply interested in the subject, but that no one man could interfere with the freedom of speech in Dodge as long as it was a free country, and as long as he was the city marshal. After this little talk, the speaker braced up and launched out again on his lecture. When he was once more under good way, he had occasion to relate an exhibition which he had witnessed while studying his profession in India. The incident related was a trifle rank for anyone to swallow raw. When the same party who had interrupted before sang out, that's another damn lie. Masterson came to his feet like a flash, a gun in each hand saying, stand up you measly skunk so I can see you. Half a dozen men rose in different parts of the house and cut loose at him and as they did so, the lights went out and the room filled with smoke. Masterson was blazing away with two guns which so lighted up the rostrum that we could see the professor crouching under the table. Of course, they were using blank cartridges but the audience raised the long yell and poured out through the windows and doors and the lecture was over. A couple of police came in later So McNulty said, escorted the professor to his room in the hotel and quietly advised him that Dodge was hardly capable of appreciating anything so advanced as a lecture on the occult sciences. Breakfast over, Honeyman ran in the Remuda, and we caught the best horses in our mounts on which to pay our respects to Dodge. Forrest detailed Rod Wheat to wrangle the horses, for we intended to take Honeyman with us. As it was only about six miles over to the saw log, Quince advised that they'd graze along Duck Creek until dinner, and then graze over to the former stream during the afternoon. Before leaving, we rode over and looked out over the trail after it left Duck, for it was quite possible that we might return during the night, and we requested McCann to hang out the lantern, elevated on the end of the wagon tongue as a beacon. After taking our bearings, we reined southward over the divide to dodge. The very first thing I do, said Quince Forrest as we rode leisurely along, after I get a shave and a haircut and buy what few tricks I need, is to hunt up that gambler in the long branch and ask him to take a drink with me. I took the parting one with him. Then I'll simply set in and win back every dollar I lost there last year. There's something in this northern air that I breathe in this morning that tells me that this is my lucky day. You other kids had better let the games alone and save your money and buy red silk handkerchiefs and soda water and such harmless Jim Jacks as that. The fact that the rebel was 10 years his senior never entered his mind as he gave us this fatherly advice, though to be sure the majority of us were his juniors in years. On reaching Dodge, we rode up to the Wright house where Flood met us and directed our cavalcade across the railroad to a livery stable, the proprietor of which was a friend of Lovell's. We unsaddled and turned our horses into a large corral, and while we were in the office of the livery, surrendering our artillery, Flood came in and handed us each $25 in gold, warning us that when that was gone, no more would be advanced. On receipt of the money, we scattered like partridges before a gunner, Within an hour or two, we began to return to the stable by ones and twos and were stowing into our saddle pockets our purchases, which ran from needles and thread to forty-five cartridges, every mother's son reflecting the art of the barber, while John Officer had his blond mustaches blackened, waxed, and curled like a French dancing master. If some of you boys will hold him, said Moss Strayhorn, commenting on Officer's appearance, I'd like to take a good smell of him, just to see if he took oil up there where the end of his neck's haired over. As officer already had several drinks comfortably stowed away under his belt and stood up strong six feet two, none of us volunteered. After packing away our plunder, we sauntered around town, drinking moderately and visiting the various saloons and gambling houses. I clung to my bunkie, the rebel during the rounds for I had learned to like him, and had confidence that he would lead me into no indiscretions. At the Long Branch, we found Quince Forrest and Wyatt Roundtree playing the Faro bank; the former keeping cases. They never recognized us, but were answering a great many questions asked by the dealer and lookout regarding the possible volume of the cattle drive that year. Down at another gambling house, the rebel met Ben Thompson, a Faro dealer not on duty, and an old cavalry comrade, and the two cronied around for an over an hour like long-lost brothers, pledging anew their friendship over several social glasses, in which I was always included. There was no telling how long this reunion would have lasted, but, unhappily for my sake, Lovell, who had been asleep all the morning, started out to round us up for dinner with him at the Wright House, which was, at that day, a famous hostelry patronized almost exclusively by the Texas cowmen and cattle buyers. We made the rounds of the gambling houses, looking for our crowd. We ran across three of the boys piking at a monte game, who had come with us reluctantly. Then, guided by level, we started for the long branch, where we felt certain we would find Forrest and Roundtree, if they had any money left. Forrest was broke, which made him ready to come, and Roundtree though quite a winner, out of the deference to our employer's wishes, cashed in and joined us. Old man Don could hardly do enough for us, and before we could reach the right house, had lined us up at three different bars, and while I had confidence in my navigable capacity, I found they were coming just a little too fast and free, seeing I had scarcely drunk anything in the three months but branch water. As we lined up at the right house bar for the final before dinner, the rebel, who was standing next to me, entered a waiver and took a cigar, which I understood to be a hint, and I did likewise. We had a splendid dinner. Our outfit, with McNulty, occupied a ten-chair table, while on the opposite side of the room was another large table occupied principally by the drovers who were waiting for their herds to arrive. Among those at the latter table whom I now remember was Uncle Henry Stevens, Jesse Ellison, Loam Slaughter, John Blocker, Ike Pryor, Dunn Houston, and the last but not least, Colonel Shanghai Pierce. The latter was possibly the most widely known cowman between the Rio Grande and the British possessions. He stood six feet four inches in his stockings, was gaunt and raw-boned, and the professor of a voice, which, even in ordinary conversations, could be distinctly heard across the street. No, I'll not ship any more cattle to your town, said Pierce to a cattle solicitor during the dinner, his voice in righteous indignation resounding like a foghorn through the dining room, until you adjust your yardage charges. Listen, I can go right up to the heart of your city and get a room for myself, with a nice clean bed in it. Plenty of soap, water, and towels, and I can occupy that room for 24 hours for two bits. And your stockyards, away out in the suburbs, want to charge me 20 cents a head and let my steers stand out in the weather. After dinner, all the boys, with the exception of Priest and myself, returned to the gambling houses as though anxious to work overtime. Before leaving the hotel, Forrest effected the loan of 10 from Roundtree and the two returned to the long branch, while the others as eagerly sought out a Monty game. But I was fascinated with the conversation of these old cowmen, and sat around for several hours listening to their yarns and cattle talk. I was selling a thousand beef steers one time to some Yankee army contractors, Pierce was narrating to a circle of listeners, and I got the idea that they were not up to snuff and receiving cattle out on the prairie. I was holding a herd of about three thousand, and they had agreed to take a run and cut, which showed that they had the receiving agent fixed. Well, my foreman and I were counting the cattle as they come between us, but the steers were wild, long-legged coasters and came through between us like scared wolves. I had lost count several times, but I guessed at them and started over, the cattle still coming in like a whirlwind. And when I thought about 900 had passed, I cut off and sang out, Here they come and there they go, just an even thousand by Gatlins. What do you make it, Bill? Just an even thousand, Colonel, replied the foreman. Of course, the contractors were counting at the same time and I suppose they didn't like to admit they couldn't count a thousand cattle where anybody else could and never asked for a recount, but accepted and paid for them. They had hired an outfit and held the cattle outside that night, but the next day when they cut them in the car lots and shipped them, They were a 118 short. They wanted to come back on me to make them good, but shucks, I wasn't responsible if their Jim Crow outfit lost the cattle. Along early in the evening, Flood advised us boys to return to the herd with him, but all the crowd wanted to stay in town and see the sights. Lovell interceded in our behalf and promised to see that we left town in good time to be in camp before the herd was ready to move the next morning. On this assurance, Flood saddled up and started for the saw log, having ample time to make the ride before dark. By this time, most of the boys had worn off the wire edge for gambling and were comparing notes. Three of them were broke, but Quince Forrest had turned the tables and was over a clean hundred winner for the day. Those who had no money fortunately had good credit with those of us who had, for there was yet much to be seen and in Dodge in 82, it took money to see the elephant. There were several variety theaters, a number of dance halls, and other resorts which, like the wicked, flourish best under darkness. After supper, just about dusk, we went over to the stable, caught our horses, saddled them, and tied them up for the night. We were fully expected to leave town by 10 o'clock, for it was a good 12 miles ride to the saw log. In making the rounds of the variety theaters and dance halls, we hung together. Lovell excused himself early in the evening, and at parting we assured him that the outfit would leave for camp before midnight. We were enjoying ourselves immensely over at the Lone Star Dance Hall when an incident occurred in which we entirely neglected the good advice of McNulty, and had the sensation of hearing lead whistle and cry around our ears before we got away from town. Quince Forrest was spending his winnings, as well as drinking freely, and at the end of a quadrille gave vent to his hilarity in an old-fashioned Comanche yell. The bouncer of the dance hall, of course, had his eye on our crowd, and at the end of a change took Quince to task. He was a surly brute, and instead of couching his request in appropriate language, threatened to throw him out of the house. Forrest stood like one absent-minded and took the abuse. Physically, he was no match for the bouncer, who was armed, moreover, and wore an officer's star. I was dancing in the same set with a red-headed, freckle-faced girl, who clutched my arm and wished to know if my friend was armed. I assured her that he wasn't, or he would have had notice of it before the bouncer's invective was ended. At the conclusion of the dance, Quince and the rebel passed out, giving the rest of us the word to remain as though nothing was wrong. In the course of half an hour, Priest returned and asked us to take our leave one at a time without attracting any attention, and meet at the stable. I remained until the last, and noticed the rebel and the bouncer taking a drink together at the bar, the former apparently in a most amiable mood. We passed out together shortly afterward and found the other boys mounted and awaiting our return. It being now about midnight, it took but a moment to secure our guns. And once in the saddle, we rode through the town in the direction of the herd. On the outskirts of town, we halted. "'I'm going back to that dance hall,' said Forrest, "'and have one round at least with that whore herder. "'No man who walks this old earth could insult me as he did, "'not if he has a hundred stars on him. "'If any of you don't want to go along, ride right on to camp, "'but I'd like to have you all go, and when I take his measure,' it'll be the signal to the rest of you to put out the lights. All that's going. Come on. There were no dissenters to the program. I saw at a glance that my bunkie was heart and soul in the play, and I took my cue and kept my mouth shut. We circled round the town to a vacant lot within a block of the rear of the dance hall. Honeyman was left to hold the horses Then, taking off our belts and hanging them on the pommels of our saddles, we secreted our six-shooters inside the waistbands of our trousers. The hall was still crowded with the revelers when we entered, a few at a time, Forrest and Priest being the last to arrive. Forrest had changed hats with the rebel, who always wore a black one, and as the bouncers circulated around, Quince stepped squarely in front of him. There was no waste of words, But a gun barrel flashed in the lamplight, and the bouncer, struck with the six-shooter, fell like a beef. Before the bewildered spectators could raise a hand, five six-shooters were turned into the ceiling. The lights went out at the first fire, and amidst the rush of men and the screaming of women, we reached the outside, and within a minute were in our saddles. All would have gone well had we returned by the same route and avoided the town, but after crossing the railroad track, anger and pride having not been properly satisfied, we must ride through the town. On entering the main street leading north and opposite the bridge on the river, somebody of our party in the rear turned his gun loose into the air. The rebel and I were riding in the lead and at the clattering of hoofs and shouting behind us, our horses started on the run. The shooting by this time having become general. At the second street crossing, I noticed a rope of fire belching from a Winchester in the doorway of a store building. There was no doubt in my mind, but we were the object of the manipulator of that carbine. And as we reached the next cross street, a man kneeling in the shadow of a building opened fire on us with a six shooter. Priest reined in his horse, not having wasted cartridges in the open air shooting, returned the compliment until he emptied his gun. By this time, every officer in the town was throwing lead after us, some which cried a little too close for comfort. When there was no longer any shooting on our flanks, we turned into a cross street and soon left the lead behind us. At the outskirts of the town, we slowed up our horses and took it leisurely for a mile or so. When Quince Forrest halted us and said, I'm going to drop out here and see if anyone follows us. I want to be alone, so that if any officers try to follow us up, I can have it out with them. As there was no time to lose in parleying, and as he had a good horse, we rode away and left him. On reaching camp, we secured a few hours sleep, but the next morning, to our surprise, Forrest failed to appear. We explained the situation to Flood, who said if he did not show up by noon, he would go back to look for him. We all felt positive that he would not dare go back to town, and if he was lost, as soon as the sun arose, he would be able to get his bearings while we were nooning about seven miles north of the saw log. Someone noticed a buggy coming up the trail as it came nearer. We saw that there were two other occupants of the rig beside the driver. When it drew up, Old Quince, still wearing rebel's hat, stepped out of the rig. "'dragged out his saddle from under the seat "'and invited his companions to dinner. "'They both declined. "'When Forrest, taking out his purse, "'handed a $20 gold piece to the driver with an oath. "'He then asked the other man what he owed him, "'but the latter very haughtily declined any recompense, "'and the conveyance drove away. "'I suppose you fellows don't know what all this means,' "'said Quince as he filled a plate "'and sat down in the shade of the wagon.' Well, that horse of mine got a bullet plugged into him last night as we were leaving town, and before I could get him to Duck Creek, he died on me. I carried my saddle and blankets until daylight when I hid in a draw and waited for something to turn up. I thought some of you would come back and look for me sometime, for I knew you wouldn't understand it. When all of a sudden here comes this livery rig along with that drummer going out to Jetmore, I believe he said. I explained what I wanted, but he decided that his business was more important than mine and refused me. I referred the matter to Judge Colt, and the judge decided that it was more important that I overtake this herd. I'd have made him take pay, too, only he acted so mean about it. After dinner, fearing a rest, Forrest took a horse and rode on ahead to the Solomon River. We were a glum outfit that afternoon, but after a good night's rest... We were again fresh as daisies. When McCann started to get breakfast, he hung his coat on the end of the wagon rod while he went for a bucket of water. During his absence, John Officer was noticed slipping something into Barney's coat pocket. And after breakfast, when our cook went to his coat for his tobacco, he unearthed a lady's cambric handkerchief, nicely embroidered, and a silver-mounted garter. He looked at the articles a moment, and, grasping the situation at a glance ran his eye over the outfit for the culprit. But there was not a word or a smile. He walked over and threw the articles into the fire, remarking, Good whiskey and bad women will be the ruin of you varmints yet. And let that be a lesson to you all. Good whiskey and bad women will be the ruin of you yet. What a story. Andy Adams is one heck of a storyteller, and I am glad to share him with you. Well, thanks again for listening. Tune in for next week, and we'll have another one. Don't forget to leave your likes and join us on Patreon. Have a day. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.